Today's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who are sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep their promise. So, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, my name is uh, Matt Fuller. I'm the vicar here. Let's pray and make sense of um, what is quite going on in a chapter such as this. Our great God and Father, you're good, you're kind, you give us what we need. And in the scriptures, we have this rich variety of different types of writing and different themes, and we need it all. You're a good God, you know what we need. Father, help us 
understand rightly what's going on here, understand crucially what it means for us today, and be at work, we ask, so that we do live as your people in a manner which brings honour and joy to your name, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, were I to ask the question, how do you measure spiritual maturity? Well, there's countless ways you could answer that sort of question. I don't know what you'd immediately, um, immediately sort of uh, grasp after. Uh, what's a spiritually mature person like? Well, they're wise. Okay, yeah, good. Um, they're kind. I mean, they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Excellent. All very good answers. Uh, and appropriate ones. There are lots of different ways of measuring it. But one significant marker recurrently in the scriptures is how do you treat the marginalized, the needy, the poor? How do you approach them? And that is the issue of Nehemiah chapter 5. You may have picked up when it was being read. There is an outcry over hunger, debt, mortgages, taxes, and you think it sounds all very current. Um, well, some issues are, are timeless or, or certainly cyclical. So you don't need me to tell you. I mean, here were just the, the, the two that jumped out straight away from the last week. Um, headlines from the papers. Um, you got those for me? The, there we go. Just, I mean, you can get them for anywhere, can't you? Protesters call for urgent action on cost of living crisis. This little girl, do it for my future and... Then there's St. Martin of Lewis. Um, uh, what is, is, he, is he sort of national treasure yet? Um, national fighter for the people, that sort of thing. Anyway, Martin Lewis, money-saving expert, uh, lamenting all sorts of things and telling you how to save five pounds here and tap and take me there and uh, make it all stretch. And um, the media's pretty full. And I guess the, the, the pressure on finances will hit different people at different times. Now, just let me just say this as I begin. I am making no comment whatsoever on trussonomics. I think cost of living was in the news before the events of the last 10 days, just to clear on that. But how you treat in sort of straightened times, how you respond, particularly to the most needy, those who are feeling the pinch most acutely, that is an issue the Bible will turn to frequently. And so Nehemiah, it's uh, in God's kindness, a timely passage to look at, I think, at the moment. But if you're joining us today, we're working our way through this uh, book, this Old Testament book. We're in around about 445 BC, uh, a long time ago. And uh, God's people, uh, the, the capital city of Jerusalem has been smashed, destroyed, broken down uh, years earlier, decades earlier. And uh, well, the, 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 the people have trickled back in sort of three little... Um, Waves and now they're in Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the walls, so it's a fortified city. Although, as we keep stressing, the book is more concerned with rebuilding the people. The walls are only some sort of indicator of the people. So they're building spiritual maturity. That is the task of Nehemiah, and, uh, who's the governor, and Ezra, uh, the preacher at this time. That's what they're about, rebuilding the people. But it does teach us a lot about building the kingdom of God. 
And uh, if you've been with us, uh, last time, last couple of chapters, things have gone, they ebb and flow in the book of Nehemiah, but last time they faced plenty of opposition, external opposition, lots of threats. These uh, Sambalat is the sort of boo, uh, the, 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 the chief baddie with his accomplice Tobias of the, pe- of the peace. They keep trying to um, thwart the work. We'll see that next time, chapter six, they try and assassinate Nehemiah because he's doing such a good job. All sorts of threats. Uh, But chapter 5, in the middle of these problems, is not external pressure, but an internal issue. So something which is threatening to divide the people here in chapter 5, which is money. Financial pressures are causing division. Now, before we turn to this particular text, let me just put one other little peg in the ground before we uh, get to it. We're looking at uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament And they are unique in biblical history and in history in being a nation that is God's chosen people. Now, I don't want to cause offense against any nation. If you believe you are today God's chosen people, but you are not. Uh, Because this is a unique moment. Only once in history has God said, Israel, represent me. It is no longer the case in that way. This side of the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the church are the people of God who represent him to the world. So this is a unique national scenario. So when we read Nehemiah 5, we we read primarily to find principles that apply to the church. You would want to be far, far slower at deriving principles of national economic policy. There'd be some echoes, I imagine, But fundamentally, primarily, its application is to the church today. Even then, the Old Testament law is, um, when it comes to finances and patterns of tithes and and offerings, it is much less concerned with uh, any kind of national economic policy. It is far more concerned with every individual makes their contribution to poor relief, and individuals are personally generous to those they encounter. That is more the emphasis when you read through the law and say Deuteronomy. With that in place, let's turn to it then. Uh, Three little things. We'll take the first two pretty quickly together. Uh, Financial pressures were pulling the people apart in the verses 1 to 5. Nehemiah then responds. He rebukes the indifference of the affluent. Uh, And then uh, at the end, we get him as a model of reverence and empathy. That takes us through. Let's work through them. First then, the issue The problem, if you get in verses 1 to 5, financial pressures were pulling the people apart. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Now, pause. That is quite something to say. A great outcry. It's not a common little phrasing. Uh, The the last time we had it was in Exodus chapter 3. God's people in Egypt raised a great outcry against their slave masters who were beating them and oppressing them. So here, the the people are saying, raising a great outcry, there is serious exploitation. It's economic, it's not physical, but there's exploitation here. What's going on? Well, verse 2, some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Well, most probably, I guess, in the flow of this, this is, okay, we're all busy building the walls, but we're not digging the earth, we're not planting crops, you know, we're going to go hungry, uh, Nehemiah, we've got a problem here. Or verse 3, others were saying we're mortgaged, mortgaged to the hilt, 
We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Grace is another problem. There's not a lot of food around, and so they're having to you know, take out loans against their property in order to buy. Verse 4, still others are saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Oh, basic rate of tax is far too high, they say. Uh, the king Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire, in whose realm they dwell, taxes are far too high. Nehemiah, we got problems. You can imagine sort of some protesters outside Nehemiah's house. We can't eat walls, they've got on their, on, their, on, their, on their placards. We want bread, not gates. Bread, not gates. Um, it's all very well, this building project, but Nehemiah, we are hungry. So there are problems, but the two main things that get highlighted are this, the, the, the slavery and the interest being charged. Now, in context, in the law, Deuteronomic law or Old Testament law, you could, if you were in trouble financially, you could sell yourself into slavery for a fixed period of time. It's a little bit like... Those amongst us who are talented sportsmen, um, you might sell yourself to a Premier League club and you agree, I sign a five-year contract, you own me for five years and you pay me £500,000 a week. How about that? And that's viewed as sort of mutually beneficial. Um, It's that sort of deal in Israel. Okay, my family is skint. Can I sell my, will you buy me for three years and pay me a fixed amount of money? So it was meant to be, I mean, it's not, not what you would desire to do, but at its best, it was a system to help out in times of need. And also written into the law was, every seven years, everyone is liberated. Everyone is liberated every seven years. So the very maximum time you could be in this deal was a six-year contract. That's okay. However, If you're sold to someone outside of Israel, a non-Israelite, a Gentile, the seven-year rule doesn't apply, and you're stuck, and you are owned indefinitely. And that seems to be what they're lamenting here. It's not right. Our people are being sold to the Gentiles. That's not right. There's no way back for them here. That's one problem. And the second one is this charging of interest on loans. You get it particularly in in, uh, uh, verse 7. You're charging your own people interest. You're just not allowed to do that in the Old Testament law. You can lend someone some money, but it's interest-free amongst God's people. That's the law. So in these two ways, there's exploitation taking place. That's the problem. And it's clearly causing a pressure. It is a great outcry. We're being exploited here, Nehemiah. What does he do? Well, 6 to 13, Nehemiah rebuked the indifference of the affluent. Verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Good. I take it we know there is good anger. And there is bad anger. We all know that. And uh, most of us have bad anger, a little bit more than good anger. But bad anger, we get irritated to the wrong degree about the wrong thing. 
Um, someone says something, we feel slighted. It's just not a big deal, but we dwell on it. And uh, well, you know, we're merging lanes, we're merging lanes. And, and, and two cars, two cars go through ahead of us. Um, and you think, it's just not that big a deal. You know, but that's often bad anger, isn't it? We get wrong, angry about silly things to the wrong degree. Good anger is where the soul is roused to confront sin. That's good. And where that doesn't happen, where there's indifference, that's bad. So you live next door to a family and you become transparently obvious, but entirely obvious that, uh, say, the husband is physically abusing the spouse. You know it, you hear it, you see it, and you say, oh, don't get involved, don't get involved. That indifference is wicked. That scenario requires anger and action, not indifference. And so when Nehemiah is roused to anger, you say, good. The problem is too many people have been aware of what's going on in Israel and there's indifference. Discrimination on the basis of, of gender or, 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 or race or, or whatever it may be. Indifference to that I think increasingly people say it's not okay. It's not okay just to be indifferent. You should be at least angered and take your part in doing something about it. So Nehemiah is angry, and so he takes action. He ponders this in his mind. What's the best way of going about this? Okay, now this is serious. And then accused the nobles and officials. He very wisely seems to um, uh, take them on privately, first of all. You're charging your own people interest, he told them. And then having warned them what's going to happen, he calls together a large meeting to deal with them. So that seems a wise way of going about it. You're charging your own people interest. As far as possible, we've brought our fellow Jews who sold to the Gentiles. You're selling your own people back, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet. They could find nothing to say. Sometimes you just see it today, don't you? Something is declared out loud. Oh, that is bad. Actually, we've got no excuse, seems to be the case here. So uh, Nehemiah goes on and says, well, you've got to stop this. Okay, I am my brother, verse 10, I am my brother, um, excuse me, verse 9. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Why? To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. You don't want people outside the nation saying, it's terrible how they treat one another. I and my brothers, we, we lend people money, but we never charge them interest. We just lend it to them, and when they can pay it back, it's fine. They pay it back. It's not right. Okay, they say, verse 12, we'll give it back, and we'll not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. Very good. And then uh, Nehemiah says, okay, how about do it now? None of this good intentions nonsense. We'll do it now. Verse 12, I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. And this bizarre shaking out of the robes, which seems to be, if you break your oath, you're going to be shaken out of the community. You're going to be excommunicated, driven out, okay? Because you've declared this in front of everyone. So it's all very solemn and serious. Super. For us? <laughs> it all feels a little distant, perhaps. But what does it mean for us? Well, certainly as a church, I would really hope we don't see the particular issue, exploitation of the vulnerable within the church family. That would be awful. 
But indifference might be a little more common. Indifference to those who are struggling financially. That's possible. And it's something, again, frequently in the New Testament we'll pick up on and say, that's not okay in a church setting. So again, just we've got a couple of examples. So James chapter 1, what religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the most needy and vulnerable, the orphans and widows in distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Or John writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Indifference when there's need, what is that? How would you call yourself a Christian? says John. Uh, That is quite possible. How we respond to the needs, the the, the most marginalized within our church family, is a significant barometer of spiritual health and maturity. Let's think briefly then inside and outside. Uh, Inside, inside the church. As I say, this this applies primarily to the church family. In 1 John 3, it's a brother or a sister Um, here in Nehemiah 5. The the, the assumption is it's the church. Look, you've got to treat the people of God rightly. What will the outsiders think if you don't? Primarily applies inside a church setting. Perhaps useful as a reminder that here at our church, we assume that the, the first place people go in case of financial distress is their discipleship group, a small group, to share that need. And maybe it's a growing need. It emerges prayerfully. Uh, it emerges uh, as practically. And often, a financial or, and practical needs are dealt with or handled within a small group. That very often is the case. Loads of times when there's been short-term loans or gifts to help people out in that way from a group. Sometimes the, the issue is just too large, for one small group to handle, certainly in an ongoing basis. And so uh, there's a deacon's fund, which hopefully most would know about uh, here at church for people to access. Assistance with budgeting, again, loans are being given, gifts are being given, people help pay their mortgages in, uh, in, in difficult times. Uh, church family perhaps will know, but uh, here in this congregation, I see Susie, Di, Adrian Valeriano, Jao Quinn, Joe Duckering, uh, for the deacons uh, involved in that process. It takes wisdom, of course. Very rarely you get someone who's a little trying it on. I think of someone a few years ago who gave up their job to dedicate all her time to painting and um, said, I've got to paint, I've got to paint, I've got to paint. And uh, I haven't got any income, so the church has to fund me. Well, you, you gave up a job. How about you go back to your job and paint a little less in the, you know, there's, this, you know, there's some wisdom involved in it. But I think far more common is that people are slow to ask for help, actually. You know, to, what do you want to call it? Not wanting to be, make a fuss, too proud, I don't know, too middle class. But I think experience that would show that people are slow to actually ask for help. And there are resources there, and uh, there's wisdom there to help you. So do avail yourself of that. I imagine that over the next few months, perhaps the fund will need more resources putting in, and some would want to do that uh, to make a donation. That's inside church. 
outside church? What about life outside uh, a church family? Well, you can ask me more about this. I think the Bible operates, particularly the New Testament, on a principle of moral proximity. The closer the need to you, the closer the responsibility you have. So a, a blood relative, a, a sibling, you have more obligation to than, than someone you don't know. Uh, a neighbor, you have more obligation to than someone on the other side of the country. There's a sort of moral proximity. You get that in lots of Jesus' parables. You know, something like a, a, a Luke 16, the rich man is lambasted because Lazarus is, is at his gate. You ignore the man at your gate. Or, or Luke 10, the good Samaritan is commended for helping the person he met. He didn't set up financial provision for those who were beaten up on the highways of Jericho. He didn't set up an organization. He did help the person who he came across. There's an issue of moral proximity. When you encounter the issue, you have an obligation in a way you don't if it's distant. We have more of an obligation to a neighbor than someone who's in trouble in Somerset. Nothing against Somerset. That's outside. There's also great organizations. Some will know Christians Against Poverty. Poverty is a very wonderful organization that some here have been involved in that welcomes anyone. Uh, anyone can come and ask for their help in budgeting and getting them back, uh, helping them consolidate loans into something that's affordable. There's just wisdom there. And uh, lots of uh, people who are not Christians have availed themselves of their services as well. Here in Nehemiah 5, it's the family of God. Again, verse 9, Nehemiah says to them, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God, the reverence for God, to avoid the reproach of those outside? Or perhaps to put it positively, to phrase it positively, there are some who've started coming to church here because they've realized, oh, my friend who's a Christian has been incredibly well looked after in very practical terms. All right, tell me more. So there is that impact outside as well. Well, so financial pressures were pulling the people apart. Nehemiah rebuked the indifference of the affluent. For you and me, we just can't be indifferent. Okay, that's the headline in many ways. We can't be indifferent to the needs within the church family. But then at the end, you get this, that we need a model of reverence and empathy at the end, verses 14 to 19. We need a model. This then seems to be possibly not at the same time, but recorded here because it's a similar ballpark of issue. So verse 14 summarizes a sort of 20-year period, and Nehemiah, uh, for the sake of brevity, highlights two things. He set aside his rights, and he didn't burden the people. I think of the things that are stressed. So verse 14 uh, in those 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. There's clearly an allowance you get as part of your salary, your package uh, as governor in Jerusalem. And this is obviously quite a big thing to give up because verse 17, he has to feed 150 people every day and all these, you know, Wow. Seems like quite a lot of cash that has to flow out. But in spite of all this, he never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Verse 17, you get the same comment. So he's paying for all this, 150 people getting fed every day out of his own pocket. Why? Well, verse 18, 
because I was conscious the demands were heavy on these people. So Nehemiah said, I was quite happy to set aside my rights, my entitlement, my salary, my package, because I knew the people were in trouble. So I, I, didn't, I, didn't, demand, I didn't say, well, give me what's due. They needed help. And then secondly, he didn't burden the people. Again, so we're told, verse 15, some earlier governors who preceded him placed a heavy burden on the people, took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine, and their assistants also lorded it over the people. But I didn't. Out of reverence for God, I, I didn't act like that. No, I, I didn't want to burden. I mean, these other governors had gone before me. I mean, I guess they could got to get away with it, but I, I, I'm not interested in burdening others. Because why I revere the Lord, fear the Lord, same meaning, same sense, same word. So you have those two things highlighted by Nehemiah. I set aside my rights because others were in need. And I wasn't a burden for anyone out of reverence for God. And in that, Nehemiah is providing a model for you and me. I think you'd have to say he's also an anticipation of Jesus, for you and for me. The son of man who told his disciples, Mark 10, secular rulers, they lord it over the people. Not so with you. You're not to do that. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is our generous Saviour, that is the one who laid aside his rights, his entitlement, and says, I've come to pay a cost that you can't pay. (laughs) As we've sung in our songs this morning, I've come to pay a ransom that you could never pay. Not financial, not a mortgage, but a debt of sin that you could never pay. You could never pay it off. I'll pay it for you so you can go to heaven. He set aside his rights for the sake of others. And of course, the Lord Jesus is one who says, I will never place a burden upon you. I delight to take burdens off you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and light. I don't burden you. Or in 1 Peter 5, cast all your burdens upon the Lord. He loves to take them off you. Do you know that, don't you? That's the nature of the Saviour, Jesus, lays aside his rights to pay for you, takes burdens off of you. That will fool us if we don't avail ourselves of that and try and carry burdens ourselves, yeah? But that is the nature of our our Saviour. So look to him. He's a Saviour who provides. Look to him. And then as a community, we need to make sure we don't willfully or unwittingly just become indifferent to the needs of those around us. Did you see this week, I didn't know quite what to make of this, did you see there was a round of interviews done by a guy called Billy Stanley, did you see this? Because he's, he's, on the, he's just released a book, uh, The Faith of Elvis by his brother. Uh, and Billy Stanley was Elvis Presley's half-brother. And so he's released this book all about Elvis. And look, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, he's got a book to sell. So obviously he, he you know, tells lots of great stories about 
what a devout man Elvis was. Now look, whatever. Uh, I take it if you're that sort of level of celebrity, you have both the sort of the demons of celebrity and the temptations, and you can, you know, have a genuine faith as well. I made no comment on that. But um, he did. He's a good storyteller, Billy. So um, not that I'm commending his book necessarily, uh, but uh, particularly telling stories of his generosity of his half, not half, stepbrother of his stepbrother. Um, Oh, I just read in the newspaper, oh, a fire, and these families have lost their apartments. They're just going down and saying, here are keys, and I've just rented this apartment block. You could all go and stay there till you're back on your feet. Just a sort of slightly eccentric generosity. Or one occasion, Billy Stanley says, I was driving with Elvis uh, in the car around Memphis, and uh, we passed a homeless guy, <clears throat> screech, U-turn, uh, got out. And said, uh, you know, what, what do you need? You know, well, I just need some money for tonight. And opened up his wallet and then just said, oh, stuff it. It just gave the bloke his sort of big fat uh, wallet of cash. And apparently the guy said to him, recognizing who it was, oh, God bless you, Mr. Presley. He said, oh, he has immeasurably. And that's why I can give this away to you. It's a sweet story, and I think he's talking about that sort of blessing. Whereas the Bible, the New Testament, would say, no, no, the Christian is one who knows he's received every spiritual blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ. That means a debt of sin is wiped away. It means future in heaven is absolutely guaranteed with its wealth and its joys and its treasures. And the Christian says, I know that's secure. I know eternity is secure. So I don't need to grasp hold of stuff now. I can be generous now because the future is completely taken care of. The Christian can say, I'm able to be generous because God has been so good to me. So we look to the Saviour. We look to Jesus Christ, and then we look around and say, we can't be indifferent. God has been very generous. We should be the same to those in our family. Let's pray together. Hey, great God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve and give, give his life as a ransom for many. Father, thank you that we know the grace of our, Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty we may know the eternal riches of relationship with you and glory in the new creation. Father, would we be those who, knowing that our future is secure, knowing that we've been treated very generously, knowing that uh, uh, eternity is completely taken care of, would we sit lightly Would we not feel the need to hoard things here and now? And above all in this passage, would we not be indifferent to the needs of those around us? Would we, in particular season where finances are going to become acutely tight and uh, painfully so for some, would we care? Would we show our genuine faith in a generous saviour by opening our hands to others? We pray it in his name. Amen.